Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, September 12th. The Queen is dead, but the King, John Kelly, is here for Media Monday. We'll discuss how the press covered the death of Queen Elizabeth II, the good, the bad, and the cringe. And we'll dig into last week's final code conference here in Los Angeles and what the world's media and tech titans had to say, including about the influence of TikTok. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers the Beat. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Happy Media Monday, everybody. Uh, It's been a few days since Queen Elizabeth II died and set off a global mourning roadblocked television news coverage uh, on some corners of the internet criticism. Uh, I'm joined today by the boss man, John Kelly, to talk about how the media, whatever that means, reacted to the Queen's passing. John, did you have any initial reaction to the Queen's death and how the press covered it? It's interesting. I heard from um, a very connected person over there that morning before I, even before I got the RSS alerts that um, something was going on. So I, I was actually sort of like prepared for for what was coming. So I wasn't shocked by it. And she was 96 years old. So I guess, you know, that's not shocking in and in, of, of itself. Um, but what is astonishing, I suppose, this isn't just like a global story. Like, you know, this is a, a life event for for people who live in, in uh, Britain, in the United Kingdom and its colonies. But it is the dominant story in the United States too. And I think in, in part, not because like anybody really wants it to be like, I'm obviously very sorry that the, that the queen died and, and um, may she rest in peace. But it almost to me seemed like this sort of like Lichtian fantasy to, to finally like, let's avoid Biden stuff. Like let's, let's not deal with the Mar-a-Lago, like seize, raid, search, whatever this sort of like non-triggering word is of the moment. And let's just run wall to wall Queen tributes, which to me have run their course already. And um, it didn't take long before some commentators on MSNBC and others are trying to like rewrite the narrative of um, of Elizabeth and, and make her seem like um, a sort of imperialist that I don't think she was. Yeah, that's a complicated narrative. I want to discuss that actually in a second. But um, when you say Lichtian, you're referring to Chris Lick, the new president of CNN. Um, and, and when she died, I, I messaged the Slack and I was like, Looks like CNN doesn't have to cover politics for a while and like deal with all of the sort of mini scandals and stuff that Dylan's been covering a lot in the last few weeks um, over there. But I, I'm the one who turned the TV on because I don't know. It's just been like a habit since I was little. I mean, like I, the first memory I have is sitting around like my kitchen table when I was probably five, like baby memory of the Challenger exploding. And like mm-hmm. my parents were TV news journalists. They're friends and family friends were in TV news. And it was just like, it it reminded me of a time when a big global news event would happen and people would turn on the TV and you'd watch the sort of like serious and elegant, like foreign correspondents cover the news. And 
you know, I just turn the news on when big things happen. And that's where CNN thrives. I was struck by, again, how good their international coverage is. Um, A lot of it was commentary. It was like the pundit version. I mean, a lot of royal uh, journalism is like political journalism. It's just like commentary from royal observers uh, sitting around a table. (laughs) It was funny. Like everyone could, like no one could help themselves. Like when saying like, like Jake Tapper was like, well, my mom was born in Canada and like she had to take on the queen and Bianca Nobilo, who's one of their foreign correspondents. um, Again, Jake, Bianca, these are really good reporters. (laughs) They're like, yeah, like I'm originally from New Zealand and here's how my family feels about it. So, but again, that cuts to her influence around the world. I saw an incredible stat that nine in 10 Americans, 90% of living Americans were born after Queen Elizabeth <laughs> took took the throne. 70 years in the throne. Yeah. Bananas. Sure. And so like one thing Katie was saying is like it reminds her of like right now in Southern California, California generally, there's this like apocalyptic like heat wave and like climate change, like we talked about last week, feels like it's coming home in a lot of ways wherever you live in the world. And that's a little existential. It's a little freaky. And then on top of that, you have this like tether to old times just disappearing. Like just someone who's just totally ambient, someone who's just like always around, someone who's he can always be like the butt of a joke or a reference that everyone gets. And then like that person's gone. And it's just like, feels like the end of a, a chapter. I don't know that there's like a ton of meaning in it, um, and that gets to some of the, the discussions that I've been seeing online about the colonial legacy of the, <laughs> the United Kingdom, which is real. The question is, like, are you writing about Queen Elizabeth's, like, I mean, there was a there was a BuzzFeed story that posted a couple days ago, and the headline was, the queen represented racist violence as much as she did glamour. And it's like, the empire represented racist violence, you know, but it's just like, she's not King Leopold beheading people on the Congo. That line of commentary, while imbued with a lot of truth, some of it feels like everyone's playing their type on the internet. You know, it's like the kind of kind of people who feel like they have to weigh in with with a progressive take. There's some of that. Something related to that, too. I feel like we're talking about CNN showcasing its strengths in a moment like this. I flipped over to MSNBC and it really showcases their weakness. And MSNBC, you know, at one point, like Nicole Wallace was interviewing Eugene Robinson, who was zooming in from a library in his house and DC or something. And later, like, Joy Reid was on. Oh, yeah. Joy Reid looked like she was going to put herself to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's like, I feel like, spoken or unspoken, the point of view of the cable networks, at least, and the TV broadcast networks, is like, we are going to hail the queen and mourn the queen and and talk about the royalty and, and just be like, treat it with all of the respect and pageantry that the royalty deserves. And Joy put her own twist on it, which was what we're talking about. She talked about the colonial history of England and the UK around the world. She listed off pretty much every African colony uh, that was under the yoke of the British Empire and then had on a couple experts. And, you know, she just felt like she was caught in between two things where she was like, the MSNBC audience wants to hear a mournful, like appreciative commentary about the Queen. But I, Joy Reid, and I on MSNBC have to give a more progressive take about this. And so she interviewed one expert who's an author about history of the empire and colonialism. And she was sort of like affirming the point of view that, that the queen was part of this racist uh, legacy. And then like John Meacham came on later in the show and was like, she was a beacon of hope and freedom for a lot of people. And like, as old as the monarchy was, she was a bridge and represented progress. And so it was just like, that show felt like, like they were caught between like competing impulses. Anyway, 
the MSNBC coverage, again, it's like this is a channel that almost exclusively does politics and politics as punditry and commentary. And then a global story happens and they can use NBC's assets overseas. But it's just like it felt like a lot of people in the studio trying to put like some kind of American spin on it. And it was just like kind of boring generally. And CNN's was a lot better. And, and Fox's was better too, quite frankly. I was watching some of that. Well, it's funny. The Queen is is a Rorschach test, as you're just pointing out. People, you know, can see into her what they want. You actually had a good, I think you texted this to me uh, and Dylan that um, that a lot of people who are mourning the Queen right now, you know, all voted for Brexit too. So there, there's that. Um, well, yeah, dude, if you have like 5,000, I texted you and Dylan this. It's like, if you have a picture of the Queen in your house and you live in like Leeds, uh, you definitely voted for Brexit. <laughs> a- a- absolutely. You 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 crave a like Britain of the past where you know she represented all its glory and it was a better time and the factories were working. Blah blah blah. And like if you live in like Shoreditch right now and like you work in media and you're like thirty, you don't have a <laughs> fucking picture of the Queen in your house. Yeah, and she was all those things. Joy's right. Meacham's right. You know, uh, uh, Britain was the the ultimate original uh, racist empire, but the, the queen was also, she was a beacon of hope. She was somebody who worked in a munitions factory during World War II and, and somehow was able to um, to stick around as that culture uh, changed, you know, through the post-war period, through the Thatcher period, through the John Major period, through the Tony Blair period. I mean, this is like, these are very, very different Britons through, through this, the city of London becoming the financial center of the world period. Like, it's meaningful stuff. And I also, I agree with you. I think we both kind of roll our eyes at this privately at um, the, the the angry youngs on the internet who um, who want to have the, you know, sort of, you know, have the final say about uh, a generation as it's going out the door. And it's, it's usually... Uh, short-sighted. But when you're talking about the media coverage, man, you are so right. And I think these news events are really, really informative because cable news is going to end up being a sort of civilized version of Twitter eventually. You know, that it's going to be the thing you write where you turn into and you want to be informed. And you're going to want general interest, agenda-free anchors to to redo that news. And um, if you are Licked or David Zaslav, that day cannot come soon enough. That was something that really, I'm glad you mentioned that. That jumped out at me when I was watching some of the initial coverage on Thursday was there's always been this like something out there where people have talked about CNN and said, why don't you turn the first block of every show into like an NPR style news roundup, which is dry news reporting? Or why don't you just become like BBC and PBS and just be boring, but be reliable? And like people will tune in for those big moments. And like, for the first time, that makes sense. People aren't tuning in millions and millions of people every day to like hear someone like Chris Cuomo give some commentary. Like people are going to start to tune into the news more on cable when it just feels like it's something important happened and I need to know what's going on. And, that, and, and in that case, you completely strip out the punditry and the politics and you try to just do dry sort of news. It, it works in every other market besides this one, by the way. And this is an, an anomaly of a market. It does. And like, I, I don't know if that will work, but it's because of, the notion that, that I mean, Zaslav has put forward that CNN is now a reputational asset. Mm-hmm, right. Um, and it's not going to be like this huge breadwinner. Um, and it's not going to be infotainment anymore. The audience won't be as big. But maybe it's like you have a reliable but small, educated audience that cares about news and news when big news happens. And you can advertise against those people. And like, that's it. And like, you get elite press coverage and people care about you and you think you've restored some like inherent journalistic value to the place that has lost its way. Maybe. I mean, I don't know if that'll actually happen, but maybe. John, when we come back, I want to talk to you about something just as exciting as Queen Elizabeth. The Code Conference in Los Angeles that you attended last week, but there were some big media headlines coming out of that. So I'm going to ask you what you heard when we come back. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. John, you were out here in uh, Los Angeles last week attending Kara Swisher's Code Conference. Lots of people spoke. My boss at Snapchat, Evan Spiegel, spoke. The second handsomest mogul in media after you, John Kelly, Bob (laughs) Bob Iger, spoke. A bunch of people gave some commentary and were shooting from the hip. (laughs) For the people listening who don't know what code is, can you just set up what it is and why it's important and why these big-time media and tech people show up? Sure. And and actually, I wrote a little about this in the backstory for our uh, our crossover reader listeners. Um, Kara Swisher has been hosting code for you know, two decades. Um, it, she invented the format that is now everywhere where you grill CEOs on stage in front of large paying audiences. And these events can be cash machines and they're also meaningful, not just because they make news and, and you know, Kara had at this event, not just your boss, Evan, but also Andy Jassy, the CEO of Amazon, Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google and Alphabet, Johnny Ive and, and Tim Cook. She knows everyone. <laughs> it was nuts. It was her last hurrah, She's, she, um, which we'll get to in a second. So, so all the big guns came out and uh, she totally mended this format. And the people who show up is uh, equally nuts. In fact, I think that um, a lot of people don't even make it onto into the ballroom and it's, it's at the Beverly Hilton. Yeah, a bunch of my buddies, or not a bunch of my buddies, but and some of our puck colleagues, I guess like people were there like playing like high stakes, like poker late into the night over the Beverly Hilton. Like, I don't even know if some people were at the actual conference, but it's a good after hours thing too. The poker thing is real and there is a high stakes. You've got to get your name on a list. Um, I, I ended up not making it to, but there's like a 5K minimum table. Like it, it's, um, if you know the right people, it's no joke there. The baller level is legit. Multiple um, uppercase B billionaires um, just hanging out in plain sight doing the whole billionaire thing with open collar shirt, lanyard, you, you know the look. Um, the Roman Roy look. <laughs> the Roman Roy look, totally. Um, Bob Iger did look incredible. Oh my God. Uh, you know, your lips to God's ears that, that we could look anything like that in our 50s. Uh, forget our 70s. Um, yeah, but a, cu- a couple of things uh, stuck with me. Mateus Doffner, the, the CEO of Axel Springer, spoke. And he's an incredibly elegant guy. Um, and, you know, he speaks like the Queen's English. I mean, he's, he's German, obviously. Um, but his locution is just like extraordinary. And he's a brave guy too. You know, earlier that morning, um, a, I wouldn't call it a hit piece, but a critical piece uh, about him came out in Washington Post by our old colleague, Sarah Ellison. And he addressed it head on. He, he put context around a boneheaded comment he'd made about praying for the election of Donald Trump. And, and you know, Mateus has long been a critic of Google and Trump's Justice Department uh, decision to go after Google was a, a benefit to, to publishers like many in the actual portfolio, such as Insider, Morning Brew, now Politico, and all the, the German publications. Um, but he said something that I thought was pretty ballsy, and I give him a lot of credit for, which was that he, he thought TikTok was a, um, a, a looming and, in fact, it really imminent threat. And I think he called it a tool of espionage. You know, actually, I'm sort of curious to get your take on this. You're, you're more in this world than I am, and this is an audience that you that you speak to. But it was one of those moments where you, you have a very American feeling where for all our mistakes here, and we are not perfect, like there's, there's a, there are at least rules and, and a decency to this culture. And I sort of thought to myself, for all the mistakes that the big platforms have made in this country, and they are they are significant. There is no fear, for me at least, that they are going to weaponize my data the way the Chinese government might. Yeah, and 
I mean, Evan Spiegel spoke about this at Code. I mean, I think Scott Galloway entered every interview at Code just being like, TikTok, TikTok, blah, 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 TikTok, <laughs> just spraying TikTok everywhere and seeing what people <laughs> said. You know, and Evan said their TikTok's going through a security review. He didn't want to address it. I'm speaking as a reporter here um, and a reporter who knows people in Washington and people with lot high-level security clearance and people who have talked about this stuff off the record. Like, it is crazy town that a foreign entity is hoovering up data on Americans at a massive scale on our political behavior, on our consumer behavior, on trends, on hot button social issues, on gender, on race. The issue isn't that Chinese intelligence, which is probably has connections to the company. I think that's like a safe bet, at least according to my conversations. Yeah, I would say so. That they're going to like look at what Mark Warner is watching on TikTok and like leak it to Breitbart and like be like, oh, like Mark Warner is watching this or that on TikTok. The issue is they just are getting a massive understanding of how Americans behave. And because they control the algorithm, can tweak it in certain ways that can affect American behavior, whether it comes to protest, whether it comes to voting. They could manipulate an entire generation if they wanted to. Anything, any information. Like, And it's just like, because Trump was the guy who tried to ban TikTok or figure out a deal to sell off TikTok, it feels like the impulse on the left in this country and by extension, the media at large, is kind of like, well, if Trump wanted to do it, it probably wasn't a good idea. So it's been kind of left alone since then in the press. Like, no one's talking about this. Like, in the in the media, it's weird that a country that is, you know, one of our largest geopolitical and financial rivals is just able to plug directly into the American public every single day. And we haven't had to deal with this recently because every great tech company, Google, Apple, Twitter, Snap, like these are all American companies. And, and yes, we are in foreign countries and, and tech companies have to abide by different rules in different countries and do their best figuring that out. Uh, <laughs> like we don't have any rules for TikTok. The US just lets TikTok do whatever they want here. It's bananas. I didn't follow Matthias's every word, but he said TikTok should be banned in every democracy. And you're like, there's something to that. But I, I just, I'm unclear why this isn't like leading the news all the time. Yeah, it, this seems to me like one of the great disconnects of like our political challenges in this country where you have such an, it's not even a latent threat, like it's such an obvious threat. And it's the, the connectivity level in not just young people, but people our age too, is, you know, the saturation is enormous. And so much of the leadership in Washington is, especially, you know, um, at the, the top of the big committees, is so old and so out of touch. And you mentioned Warner. I think Warner is... No, Warner's good. Sorry. Warner, like, the, the reason Warner was, like, top of mind because he's, like, one of these senators who is actually literate and savvy in this stuff and, you know, was also investigating Russian interference via Facebook and Instagram during the, the last couple elections. But you're right. Like, the rest of, the rest of our political leadership is... Um, Joe Cunningham, the former congressman who's uh, running for governor in South Carolina, just ran an ad about how old our political leadership is. And he said, we live under like a geriatric dictatorship or something <laughs> like that, not, not dictatorship, but like he basically like is making it a point in his campaign to point out that his rival in the governor's race in South Carolina is like been in politics since like the 80s. And a lot of younger politicians, including some Republicans are like, get out of the way, guys. Do you even like understand how to use your phone? 
it's crazy. So I think that that's all fair, and and this is um, this is scary stuff. And if you believe that that Putin weaponized the platforms for Trump, which obviously you know uh, I think a, a sensible person believes the platforms have adjusted to that. Maybe not always perfectly, but but they they certainly adjusted. I'm of the belief that a, a version of that is possible of taking place every single day, not just by tweaking the algorithms, but by really you know you could go a lot further and, and figure out how to intentionally more than tweak intentionally serve people content. So it is it's scary stuff. Good for Mateus. Germans don't mince words. Very, very, very direct. It's not, it's not a romance language culture. Um, so uh, that was that to me was was the um, and when he said it too, I think it took people a minute to realize what he had just said. But you know, the other thing that actually stuck out to me about the conference was that, for lack of a better term, she ended it when she created this concept. You know, all those years ago, it was totally novel. Now everyone rips off code. I worked at places that rip off code. Every brand has their own code. I think she's sort of is a natural innovator um, and, and wants to do new things. And I think she got sick of it and she wants to try something different. And, um, you know, I give her a lot of credit for for going out on top, which is very hard to do. Very few people do that. Yeah. I was just like sort of stunned at how hard it is for people to, to nuke something when they're at the top of their game. And I give her credit for saying like, you know what? When I started this, it was cool. Now it's not as cool because you guys are all doing it too. So I'm going to come back and do something cool. And that's a, that's a baller move. Whatever... You think of Kara Swisher like she has navigated and pivoted, no pun intended. Like she understands the currents of media and tech. And so like she's smart to just walk away and not ride this thing into the ground like somewhere else might. Yeah, like everyone else. All right, John, um, I will see you on the Slack. Have a good week, man. All right, you too, man. See you there. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.